following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn to Isaiah 22, please. We've been getting a large dose of Isaiah. I actually thought maybe I should uh, have this kind of divided up and be reading, like in the mornings, read the old... the. Um, First four, from the first 40 chapters, or first 39, and then in the evenings read from the second section of the book from uh, 40 forward. But uh, I'm not going to start that tonight. We'll just start with, uh, keep going with where we've been. So we pick up at Isaiah 22. The burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead... Joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house." So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. There, by the way, often the uh, metaphor of a father refers to a ruler or leader or king over the uh, house, over the you know, realm. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. 
I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. And that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. All right. May God bless that, the reading of Isaiah in the 22nd uh, chapter there. And the small little flock will remain behind to uh, look into Matthew's gospel in chapter 3 this evening. Matthew and chapter 3. This is perhaps more of a message for those that do not know the Word of God very well. So hopefully it will be utilized that way in the future as the recordings and the podcast are encountered by those who uh, do not know uh, the Lord. But uh, we'll go through this and uh, be benefited by it ourselves as well. Matthew chapter 3. Uh, now, I've, I actually have an outline for this chapter, which I don't have with me in the pulpit here, but uh, you'll see the chapter kind of falls out into two segments. One is the segment that has to do mainly with John the Baptist. That's verses 1 through 12 and his announcement. And then the second section is in verses 13 through the end of the chapter, which central, uh, the central focus of that is on the Lord Jesus. And, uh, of course, John is involved because John is uh, baptizing him there in that section of Scripture. But I don't think we'll get there uh, this evening. What we want to do is begin at uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, since that's where we left off before. And we will then look through verse 12, Lord willing, or as far as we get. And as we read, let's observe the details of the text, but at the same time, let's try to resist the urge to get caught up in the details, and rather let us uh, make sure we get the main point of the passage. Uh, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan, or winnowing fork, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor 
gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Just a little notice for you here. If you go to chapter 4, verse 17, I'd like you to correlate this verse in your mind with what we read in chapter 3 and verse number 2. Notice that it says, from that time, this is 417, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John the Baptist in 3.2 said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you suppose that Matthew is trying to show us that the message of Jesus and the message of John the Baptist were essentially similar messages? He uses the very same words to summarize these messages. And I think that's one observation that we can glean from Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4 that's helpful for us as we face some of the questions about what is the gospel and what is it, what's the preaching of the gospel supposed to be like today? Or is the message that John and Jesus preach different than the message that we preach? <clears throat> we have to at least begin with that foundational point that John and Jesus were pe- preaching the same message. And that message was the message of repentance. And so we begin in verses 1 through 4, talking about John preaching repentance. Now, we are introduced to John very abruptly in chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came. That's all. Boy, we could wish for some more information. Thankfully, we have more in uh, Luke, especially, and some in John, uh, not so much in Mark. If you go to Mark, Mark just starts right off very briefly and, and talks about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and, and talks about John preaching. Uh, just quick, you know, right to the point. Uh, John's gospel does uh, allude to uh, uh, John the Baptist a little bit more, John the Apostle, speaking of John the Baptist. And he gives a little bit more detail. He t- talks about the fact that John the Baptist was not the light, but he came in to bear witness t- to the light, and that he was out in the wilderness, and the leaders of Israel came to him and asked him, are you the, the Christ, are you the prophet? And he denied that, and then they asked him who he was, and he gave that little statement that we'll read here in just a moment from Isaiah's prophecy. Um, but of course, the greatest detail of background for John, the Baptist is given in Luke's gospel. As you recall from our Christmas readings, Luke chapter 1, we have uh, the narrative of John's birth, his parents, Zacharias, Elizabeth, and the whole thing that happened there with them. And uh, it tells us that uh, John grew and became strong in spirit in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. So he also, like Jesus, began his ministry about 30 years of age. He's probably maybe a little bit younger you know, making preparations for the Lord uh, to, to come. Yeah, but yet he's been in, you know, lived in relative obscurity for better part of 25 years, right? Or something like that, 26, 7, 8 years. Uh, but so we have those details. But anyway, uh, Matthew is content with just uh, mentioning in those days John the Baptist came. And uh, when he came, it says that he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So first I want to notice with you the method that John used. The method that John used was preaching. He did not use the market-driven felt needs, you know, all kinds of stuff, that that, that kind of approach to gospel ministry. He proclaimed truth 
And let me mention, too, that he did not just proclaim soft truth. This was hard truth. Um, now, the preaching that he was offering was maybe not exactly like what you might think of in the pulpit of a church, like what I'm doing right now, exposing or expositing a text of Scripture, although it is similar. In this situation, John is making uh, an official, public, out loud declaration from God, the king, to his subjects. You have to look at it that way because he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this means that the kingdom that comes from heaven is near, and so thus we're, he's announcing the coming king. He's announcing about this king and what the needful response is in light of that. Now, um, let me just mention here, too, it's, I didn't write this in my notes because I just didn't bother, but uh, I'll share it with you, and that is this, that when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if you are a little confused about what that is, let me just help clarify that. The kingdom of heaven is equal to the kingdom of God from other passages of Scripture. Equals. Have you ever seen an equal sign with three? Three lines instead of two? Like, it is identically the same. It is the same thing. And so we're talking about the kingdom of the God of heaven being proclaimed. It's coming. It's being um, uh, announced. It's being offered. And it would come. And, uh, of course, we know that it was delayed. It was postponed. It was rejected by the Jewish people. And uh, it will come again later when the Lord Jesus returns. Uh, no offer at that time. It will just be a hard... Uh, you know, interjection into the human situation uh, with no permission asked by God. Uh, his kingdom will come. That is the kingdom we're talking about here. Now, we have to recognize, back to this preaching, that our message of the gospel requires the same kind of announcement. Our message is authoritative. It's not wimpy. It's certain. It's not wishy-washy. See, some today have made a virtue out of and of a wimpy, wishy-washy kind of message. That's not what John the Baptist would support at all. Our message is strong. It's not apologetic. We don't, we don't say sorry for preaching the truth of the gospel. Our message is Christ-focused, not focused on social issues. Our message is convicting and comforting, but it's not just a feel-good-about-yourself message. Churches that uh, preach self-esteem and want to lift uh, folks up and inspire them, that's kind of nice on a human level, but it's totally insufficient for what a gospel message is to contain, what the gospel message is to contain. So in those days, John the Baptist came. He came preaching and it says he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Why the wilderness? Well, perhaps on a practical level, he was not welcomed in the population centers. You remember Jesus, uh, sometimes he told people, look, don't tell that I healed, because what would happen? Then he would be mobbed, you know, and then he wouldn't be able to go freely in and out and do what he had to do. So then he had to go out and preach in, in, in remote areas or go out on a boat in the lake and get away from the pressing crowds. And, uh, and, and because people were looking for something they thought was the most important, which was what? Like physical healing, right? And Jesus was trying to 
say, no, I, I came to preach, preach the gospel of peace with God. So maybe that's the reason. Maybe he was not welcomed by the leadership. Maybe he was persecuted. But the nature of the wilderness, beyond just a practical matter, is this wilderness is a fit picture for an outcast prophet, one who soldiers on despite persecution in his work. This makes John the Baptist like the prophets of old who were situated in a similar fashion. Let me uh, have you turn to Hebrews in chapter 11, that very well-known passage. But now this time at the very end of the chapter, this section of Hebrews 11 is perhaps less well-known than the other parts of the earlier parts of the chapter because it's just kind of a summary of, you know, the apostle here is saying, look, there's so many more examples of faith in the Old Testament era that we can't go over them all in detail. But here's a couple of them in verse 37 of Hebrews 11. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. Here, listen, listen to this. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So I keyed in on that notion of you know, wandering about in sheepskins and goatskins. Uh, that, that wasn't John's uh, situation uh, exactly. Uh, he, he, I think maybe sheepskins, goatskins might be softer than what he was wearing. I'm not sure but uh, I've never tried on a camel's hair garment, but that's what John uh, was, uh, was in. And uh, he must have lived out somehow in the, the wilderness, uh, perhaps in a den or cave. So just like these ones in the Old Testament era, there's John the Baptist. Quite interesting that he's likened to them in their experience. Now, the content of John's message, we've seen the method of it is preaching. Yes, sir. I have a quick question. So was John being in the wilderness then um, forced? Or did he choose to be out in the wilderness? The, the question is, was John's, well, was he forced to be out into, in the wilderness or did he choose to be there? Um, I was suggesting in the practical kind of clause of my notes there that it may have been that he was pushed out. But we don't know that. We just don't know that. So, um, and you know, it may also be simply that he's using that as uh, kind of a picture of how his message was uh, not well received by those in the power centers of Israel uh, as well. So I can't answer specifically. Uh, it doesn't tell us that he was forced out there. Like Jesus was forced to uh, avoid some of the population centers after he was revealed to be this miracle healer. So we'll have to leave it at that, uh, just giving a couple speculative uh, points about why he might have been out in the wilderness. It certainly makes him fitting as an Old Testament kind of prophet. All right, so we have the preaching, the method, and then the content of the message. And that's very simple. The main message is the command, repent, repent. 
repent. What does that mean? It means to change your mind in uh, the most basic kind of meaning. And I think you understand what we mean if we say you need to repent of your sin. If you have never turned away from your sin, if you have never realized that it is a very bad negative in a relationship with God, if you never have realized that it displeases God, your sin, think of the sin you're living in at the moment. What does God say about it? Well, he says this, to repent. If you ask yourself, how can I be right with God? Well, step number one, repent. Uh, This is a command from heaven to men and women, to children, to old and young, that all must turn away from their sin, all of their sin. Each person has to change their mind about their sin, uh, about their course of life. This is elemental. This is like 101 foundational uh, level to what God wants us to do in this life. It's basic, you know, kindergarten level religion, if you will, religion in the good sense. Repentance and faith in, in God is where you start. It's how you continue. You turn your heart and desires toward God and away from sin. And this, I've already kind of made an allusion to this because I'm saying this for today. It's not just the message that John gave 2,000 years ago. It's the present-day Christian message also. Christians report the same message, the same command from heaven. In fact, what did Paul do in... Uh, the city of Athens, that famous Greek city, in Acts chapter 17, he said at the end of his sermon, God commands all men everywhere to repent. I I still cannot understand how people can eliminate repentance from their idea of the gospel. It's just just so out of the realm of reality. Uh, With that verse, God commands all men everywhere to repent. This is to repent about sin to repent about your unbelief, to repent about the wickedness that you are doing. So we're calling, as as Christians, we're calling people to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's be clear about what repentance is. We're not saying, no, no Christian, true Christian teacher is saying, get all your life straightened out and then you can come to Christ. In other words, repentance is not equal to reformation. Repentance is not equal to reform. It's not the change of conduct that is repentance. It is the change of mind, which then leads to what? The change of conduct, eventually. Maybe not all at once, maybe not in one grand gulp, but certainly it does lead there. But it's repentance is the change of mind. It's the change of direction. It's the change of desire that happens in one's heart when you say, yeah, I, love, I used to love this, but now I hate it. I want to go away from it. I, I, my desire is to please God. My desire is to turn away from sin. So if you'd allow me to speak very practically, if you're living with a person that's not your spouse, you know what I mean, you need to repent. If you think abortion is okay, or you've happily had an abortion, you need to repent. If you're toying with transgenderism or suicide, you hateful against other human beings or proud or a rebel against your parents or if you hate God or gossip or indulge yourself in whatever pleasures you want, you must, what? Repent. Period. 
And I've only just touched on a few things, but your conscience will help you to know what things you're doing. And if not, then get into the book and read it for a while, and you'll, you'll get an idea of what God says is sin and what is not. At the base, what sin is, is loving yourself. It's selfishness. It's self-centeredness as opposed to loving God and trusting God and, and following the Lord. So, what is the message? It's repent. Why this message? Well, he tells us. He says, repent for, or just replace that with the word because, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's drawn near. Now, there are, other, there are a lot of reasons, or several reasons we could say, that repentance is important. Primary among them is that repentance takes you away from, draws you away from that which causes eternal death, which is sin, right? Uh, physical death and eternal death, spiritual death are all caused by sin, and you don't want to go there. You want to get away from that as far and as fast as possible. So repentance is very critical because that's what leads you off of that path and leads you to Christ. But in this text, that's not so much the issue. The reason given here for repentance is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, you need to repent because God is about to show up. God is about to show up. Jesus is imminently going to make his entrance into the world, which, by the way, we see that in verse 13. Look at that. Then Jesus came from Galilee. Uh Uh-oh. You know... This is like you have guests coming and your house isn't ready yet. Only this is a thousand times worse. God is coming and your house isn't ready. That's kind of where we get the phrase, you know, get your house in order, get your affairs in order, get, your, you know, get yourself right with God, as it were. Of course, that's only possible through Christ. But the king is coming. When he comes in his kingly glory, he's not going to tolerate rebellion. See, when we preach the gospel, friends, this is now you know, training for us. We're not simply, and I think I preached on this some months back about the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. We're not simply preaching an individualistic gospel that's you, know, you and God and get on happy terms. No, it's that, it's that plus the fact that Christ is coming as king And you are going to be his subject. You are going to be a citizen in that kingdom if you're a believer. Uh, If you're not, you're not going to be allowed to be a citizen in that kingdom. And you need to be right with the king. God is gracious and forgiving right now, but rebellion against the king will simply not be allowed. The Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness of character, no one will enter his kingdom. You cannot be rightly related to the king if you love rebellion, if you love sin more than you love him. Now, this holiness that's required to enter the kingdom grows out of a prior relationship begun with Christ through the new birth. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot experience that kingdom unless you have been born again. And that will bring that holiness that is required for you to see the Lord in in his kingdom. 
So if you can just imagine more of a political, earthly, uh, geographical, military reality that a king, a new king is in town and he's going to be figuring out if you're loyal to him or you're loyal to the enemy. And what happens to those who are loyal to the enemy? Goodbye. They're gone. That's the picture that we need to understand. God's kingdom is not a democracy. You know, it's not what we are used to here in the West. God's kingdom is a kingdom with Christ as king. And uh, Psalm uh, uh, 2, the second psalm, tells us about that. You know, if, you, uh, if you're one of these ones that says, look, we don't want to have his, his bands, his cords, his restraints. We want to cast those off. God is going to chuckle at that. He's going to laugh about that. And the king will come, and you better be rightly related to the king and do homage to him and, uh, and not uh, hold on to your sinful ways. So that's why you must repent, because God is going to show up as your house ready. Is it all clean? Is it all ready to go? <clears throat> Are you ready for the hospitality, so to speak? Only, as I say, a thousand times more important than that. So that brings us to the end of verse number two. J John is preaching. His message is repentance. The reason the kingdom of heaven is upon us. And then it says this. This is Matthew explaining what's going on here. You say, who is this John? Why is he doing this? Well, it says in verse 3, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So let's turn our Bibles back to Isaiah 40 and observe what we see there. And what we'll do is we'll start in chapter 40 and verse number 1. This is the beginning of the book of comfort, some have called it, of Isaiah, the uh, so-called New Testament portion of Isaiah, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy. And in chapter 40, verse 1, it says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. What a relief that her iniquity is pardoned, even more of a relief. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thus says the word of God, my friends. There is going to be a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, and then the preparations are listed here. You have a, a straight highway, uh, valleys raised up, mountains brought low, crooked straightened, rough smoothed, so that the Lord will be able to enter into uh, the place of Israel comfortably. So the imagery here is of an advanced party making way for a king to travel to a certain area. 
They precede him to make sure everything is right, everything's smooth, the roads are suitable, there are no issues along the way, no problems, no bandits, you know, no, uh, no places where he's going to get ambushed. <clears throat> but what about the, uh, the connection of this to the spiritual truth that, that Matthew is trying to teach here? When the Bible says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, and all these things that we looked at, valleys exalted, mountains and hills brought low and everything, all this is in Matthew's mind as he writes this uh, phrase here, summarizes the prophecy with these, these four lines, at least how it's laid out in my Bible. What does, what does, the, what does this mean? making mountains low and valleys raised and, and crooked places straight and rough places smooth. What, what is all that? Well, it's the spiritual notion that Matthew is, pro, uh, is portraying here is a, a, a metaphor, a metaphorical reference to the humility and holiness of repentance as opposed to the lofty pride of sin. So the mountain of, of pride is brought low, and the valley of abasement is brought up. Straight and crooked and rough and moral are moral references as well. So if you have a rough, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if your condition of your life is a little rough, I'm not talking about, you know, circumstances, but I'm saying, you know, your, your, your spiritual life is a little rough right now. You're passing through rough waters, uh, perhaps living in, in some sin that is struggle, you're struggling with. Uh, crooked is a very common way of expressing something that's evil or wrong. So take something that's crooked and make it straight. So the advance party coming ahead of the king, his name is John the Baptist, he was to make the road ready for Christ. And how he did that was to get people to come to repentance, to humble their lofty or mountainous views of themselves, to straighten those paths that are crooked, uh, to smooth those roads that are uh, filled with sin as potholes. And so they were to come to repentance. So you want to read this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as the way that, that John is preparing the, uh, the way for the Messiah to come. <clears throat> Now, when it says the glory of the Lord will appear or be revealed back in Isaiah, that refers to the appearance of Christ on the earth after the advance party. John makes uh, his way straight. Now, let's just dial into this just one more second. Jesus does not need the terrain of the earth to be changed so that it's more convenient for him to travel upon. A regular human king would need that. You know, make sure the bridges are, are functioning and not, you know, not out over the rivers and all that. Jesus doesn't need that to, for his travel. He demands the terrain of your heart be smoothly leveled. The contours of your mind be entirely altered and the desires of your will radically remade. That's what it means to repent or in this case, in the other language, the symbolic language, to make those ways smooth. In short, he calls us to repent and believe the gospel. That's how the way is made for the Lord. And so John comes and he's hoping, well, he's commissioned, and I'm sure hoping that he can 
bend the trajectory of the nation of Israel toward repentance so that they will be ready when the Lord appears because he knows he's going to appear within, well, of this section, days, weeks, months perhaps from when he began his, his ministry. <clears throat> Can you imagine how daunting that would be? I know Israel was smaller than, say, the nation in which we live today, but can you imagine if God commissioned you and said, okay, uh, the Lord is coming in the next few months, your job to get the nation ready. You need to proclaim the truth. You need to preach repentance so that the way will be made straight for the Lord to return. What a task. What a huge job. And John had been preparing for this for the better part of 30 years, 25 years, and this is his mission in life, to prepare and make paths straight for the Lord. Now, one more note uh, before we get to the uh, baptism of John here. It says in verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I don't know what to make of all those details. Um, they'd be interesting to think about. I don't think that it would be very comfortable to go around in camel's hair Leather belts aren't so bad, you know, if they're uh, the right size. But uh, having that tighten around you, a, a coat of camel's hair, uh, and eating locusts and wild honey, I'll take the honey side. I like raw honey. But uh, the locusts, I mean, I'd have to be dipping those locusts in the honey and cooking them or chopping them up and making a chopped locusts or something. <laughs> you got to do something with these locusts. I mean, just to pop them in, that's gross. Poor John. Well, that's, it's all reflection on where he was living and how he was living as a testimony for God. I think that, that John is a, a connection to the Old Testament. Go back with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 1. Let me just try to make this kind of little case here, if I may. 2 Kings 1.8. Uh, actually, let's go back and say... Um, uh, so, we've really got to get more of, the, more of the context here. So, Ahaziah says in verse 2 of 2 Kings, fell through the lattice of his upper room and was injured. He sent messengers to them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Oh, Ahaziah, why do you do this? But the angel of the Lord sent to, said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go and meet the messengers of the king of Assyria and say to them, is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. And when the messengers returned to him, he said, Why have you come back? So they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? What a rebuke to a king in Israel. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to them, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? 
So they said, or they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And the king replied, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And so you can go on and read the narrative about how he sent others to uh, go to the man of God and, and uh, that whole thing, how it turned out. But notice that it, Elijah was described as a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. I think that John the Baptist looks awfully a lot like Elijah, a major link of continuity between the Old and New Testament sections of the Bible. And he brings such continuity because he's not substantially different than those prophets. And this ties the Bible together in, uh, in, in a way to make it a unified single book. You know, like I said before, when you come to the page in your Bible that says New Testament, Matthew didn't write that page, nor did Malachi. The editors of your Bible put that page there, and there's not a disconnect between the two segments. John the Baptist comes, and the people of Israel who are watching are saying, whoa, here's another prophet just like the prophets of old, Elisha, all these guys, Isaiah. Uh, So he's very much the same as these prophets, tying the Bible together. Now, note that John was not Elijah. Do you ever get confused about that question? If John was Elijah or wasn't Elijah? In John chapter 1, verse 21, the leaders of Israel asked him, What then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, we would have to suppose that John is very confused about his personal identity if he is Elijah and he said, I am not, or else he's lying outright. Neither of those is the case. John knows who he is. He was born of his parents, just like Luke 1 explains, uh, and he is a separate individual from Elijah. Now, he did come in the spirit and power of Elijah, Okay, Luke 1, verse 17. Thurman, if you're listening out there, you'll appreciate this little section of the message, Elijah and John the Baptist. Luke 1, 17, um, it says here in the announcement of John's birth, he will go before him, that is the Messiah, he will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The readiness, again, all spiritual readiness, not physical readiness. And so he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now I'll go back to Matthew's gospel, but go to Matthew 11 and verse 14. Matthew 11 and verse number 14. So we've clearly established John says, I'm not Elijah, but he's, got this, he's in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, he's very similar. And of course, has the same Holy Spirit dwelling in him and preaching a very similar message to John the Baptist. Uh, the message you know, of, of Elijah was calling the people back to covenant faithfulness. And John's message was slightly different because the law of Moses was in process of being superseded. Or can I say, to clarify for one of our commenters, the law of God given through Moses was in the process of being superseded, not by men, by God. God decided to set that law aside and establish or institute a new rule of life for the believers. Well, anyway, 
John is said in Matthew eleven fourteen. He's explained this way, um, in verse I'll say eleven thirteen. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. So John is kind of a dividing line. He's the end of the Old Testament prophets, right up to him. And then Jesus says this, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the resolution of this with what John said of himself is simply this. The if statement there, one of my favorite kind of counterfactual statements, uh, is that if you as a nation had received the message of John and of Jesus, then this would have been Elijah. But John, or God rather, knew that John was not going to be well received and that Jesus was not going to be well received. And so it is not the case, in fact, that John is Elijah, but he's still closely aligned with him. So hypothetically, you know, if you people did not reject the, the offer of the kingdom, then this would have been John. But it's not John, because you didn't receive it. Okay, so that brings us to the end of verse number four. I'll let you uh, investigate a little bit more about camel's hair, leather belts, locusts, and wild honey. We're concerned more with the connection uh, with the Old Testament prophets as I looked at that myself in our study. All right, so we have John preaching the message of repentance. Then we have John baptizing the repenters. John baptizing the repenters. Many people were responsive to John's message. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem, all all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. I'm not going to get into, other than just to mention it, this whole idea of all Judea, all the region around the Jordan. Uh, some folks you know, use that and, and speak about the meaning of the word all and say, well, it's certainly not all. The fact of the matter is, this is a bunch of people. The whole region filled with people from Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea an area around the Jordan where John was baptizing, all of them heard of the message of John and came out with some interest level, and many of them with an interest level that indicated, yes, they, I, w- I want to repent. I want to identify with your message of repentance. Now think of that. John did not have nightly news nor social media to proclaim his message. How did it get spread? Word of mouth. People speaking the message and saying, hey, you've got to go see this John. I just was there. I confessed my sins, and he baptized me in the Jordan River. And he said, there's somebody coming after him who's way bigger and better than John is. Something's going on out there. You've got to see it. And so people went out to see John and to hear his message, to hear his preaching, and to respond uh, to it. Now, what number, how many of these all actually responded? We have no idea. It would be sheer speculation to say, except that we might be able to assume that the number was not 100%. It might not have even been 50% of people who really repented of their sin, because that's what John was demanding of them. 
But those who did respond confessed their sins and were baptized in the Jordan. And I'm careful to say that that's the order. First confession, then baptism. Now, it doesn't give it specifically or explicitly in that order in the text. Uh, they went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. It's, it's actually, as, as they're being baptized, they are confessing at that time. But why would they go down into the water of baptism with John if they weren't responding to his message? As soon as they heard his message and God's Spirit worked in them and brought conviction and they walked forward, so to speak, to be baptized, that is when the transformation occurred in their lives. They responded to John's message and had a heart of repentance, recognized their need to turn from sin, and thus they were prepared for the coming of the Messiah. They had smoothed out the rough places and straightened the crooked paths in their life. And then they made evidence of that repentance by confession of their sins. Okay, so actually, if I were to kind of clarify what I just said there or wrote in my notes, I would say repentance in their hearts leading to confession outwardly, leading to baptism, which identified them with John's message. And confession and repentance are really almost the same. We don't have to really slice and dice them into some fine uh, distinction. Confession is saying the same thing as God. Now, it just providentially turned out that Naomi, uh, who helps me select the devotionals each week for the bulletin, selected the one today that you saw in there, which had to do with confession, didn't it? If you read that. And if you haven't, I encourage you to do that. Go get the bulletin off the website or grab an extra copy here and look at that, uh, both devotional about marriage and also the one about repentance or confession, rather. Confession is agreeing with God that what you've done is wrong. And that's, the, that's basic to sin. When you've sinned, you have to admit, I have done wrong. God, I agree with you. I'm not fighting that declaration. I'm not fighting that judgment that you, you are correct. Psalm 51.4, David expresses his confession to God and he says that you might be justified when you judge. In other words, that yes, what you say is actually true. I agree with that, God. I did wrong. I am a sinful person. So John baptizes these ones who confess their sins, who are exhibiting repentance or the fruit of repentance, and he uh, identifies them with his message by this baptism. That's where we get the whole notion of baptism as identification, putting them into the water, symbolizing their cleansing from sin, symbolizing their connection with the, uh, with the message of repentance. The water doesn't itself cleanse from sin. That cleansing occurred when the, the roads were made smooth and straight in their hearts when they repented, <clears throat> turned from their sin. All right, so now we're going to turn our attention to another part of the audience, and that is in verse 7, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, brood of vipers. That doesn't translate into happy language in any language, <laughs> brood of vipers. Boy, that's rough. He says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So the Pharisees and Sadducees are called out for their sin. 
And as you know, the scriptures uh, elsewhere give us enough information to know that many of these Pharisees and Sadducees pretended to be religious, they pretended to be righteous, but inside they were filthy. Outside they were like whited sepulchers, remember? Painted, nice and they looked good, but on the inside they were what? Full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. They were self-righteous, haughty spirits who many of them did not think they stood in need of God's forgiveness. Now, certainly some Pharisees, some Sadducees, I'm sure came to faith in God through Christ, but many of them did not, and certainly the upper echelon and leadership did not, uh, all save you know Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, for example, but they didn't think they stood in need of God's forgiveness. You think of the... Uh, the parable that the Lord told of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember that? Tax collector goes up there to the temple and won't even look up to heaven. He, he, realize, he recognizes himself as a pathetic sinner. But the Pharisee goes up and he's you know, standing very tall and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, even like this guy over here. You know, I'm so good. That's the, that, that's the kind of person that, that we're talking about here, who John calls a brood of vipers. Nothing good comes out of a brood of vipers. The only thing that comes out of it is more vipers. Uh, he wondered why were they coming? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So how do you get... So you must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means that there's wrath coming from the king against those who are rebels. And John is saying, what about this? How, how, who, who warned you to flee from this wrath? if they even really knew about it or considered it. Um, when the king arrived, they would have to flee from the wrath. But these guys were, you know, I say not even hedging their bets. What do I mean by that? You know, you'd think if, if, if a Pharisee heard John's preaching and, and need to repent and he was thinking about his own soul and, you know, kind of thinking, well, here I am, here's my Pharisee position, and maybe I should just get baptized in any ways, you know, because I, I want to be sure that I'm okay. I want to hedge my bets here. I, I want to hang on to my Pharisee thing, but I'd like to, I'd like to uh, make sure that I'm okay in case there is something bad that's going to happen to those that don't repent, and uh, they, <clears throat> they didn't do that, many of them. They came to see what was going on. They came to see who was stirring the pot, John. They came to question, who are you? They came to criticize, but they didn't come to repent. But John called them like everyone else to repent, and then what does he say? Bear fruits worthy of that repentance. Verse 8. So what are the fruits? Uh, true repentance abounds with evidence in words and in actions. Again, it's not the fruit that saves. It's the repentance corresponding belief, which is integral with repentance. So whenever I'm saying repentance, by the way, hear me saying repentance as one part of the conjoined conglomeration, if you will, of faith and repentance. But notice that it's, it's named under the heading of repentance here. You can't just replace repentance with faith and say, okay, well, he's just asking us to believe in Jesus. No, he's asking us to repent and turn away from our sin. That's what God wants us to do. If you haven't, again, I call you, if you haven't come to a place of repentance about sin in your life, 
then you haven't done business with God. You have not been saved if you have not repented of your sin. So it's not the fruit of repentance that saves. It is the repentance and corresponding faith. The fruit is a side effect, a very important side effect, but a side effect nonetheless. Now, John warned them about a false sense of security. Because when somebody's confronted with the reality that you need to repent, you know, you're not right with God, then somebody could say, well, I mean, I grew up in a, as a Catholic. I mean, I grew up as a, as a Jew. Uh, Abraham is my ancestor. I'm okay. No problem here. That is a complete misunderstanding of the truth of God. John says in verse number 9, Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. It doesn't matter if you're a child of Abraham because, you know, God could, if we could update the metaphor, the, the, the picture, God could take these chairs and turn them into people who are descended from Abraham. You could test their DNA and test Abraham and you'd find out, yep, sure enough, there they are, they're Jewish. So your lineage, your ancestry matters nothing in your uh, walk with God or in your security. Jewish parents, Jewish ancestry, Jewish religion, Jewish, Jewish diet, Jewish law, Jewish God, Jewish anything is insufficient to save as a way to wash away sins. Abrahamic lineage does not save one single person on the face of the earth ever. And we know, by the way, from Paul's writings that not everyone who is of Israel that is, who comes out of that lineage, is really Israel. I mean, who is Israel? Let's see, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Uh, certainly not from Abraham. I mean, Abraham had other children besides Isaac, didn't he? Ishmael, and a whole bunch of beyond that. Um, Isaac, who did Isaac have? Jacob and Esau, well, Esau is not in the, in the promised line. And then, uh, of course, the same principle applies to, to uh, Jacob, to Israel, that you don't have, if you have him as a father, it doesn't matter. Just like if you have Abraham as a father, it doesn't matter. Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, Romans 9, 6. And let me just highlight that again by saying Judaism today offers no way for sins to be cleansed. No way that's authorized by God or written about in the Old or New Testaments, in the Torah or in the New Testament. There are no sacrifices, no offerings, no altars, no temple, nothing. Judaism as a religion has become decoupled from its written foundation. You understand what I mean? Like what Judaism practices today is not what is in Genesis through Second Chronicles, I'll say, in the Hebrew Bible order of things, or Genesis through Malachi in our Bible's order, there's nothing there that uh, says that, you know, you, you're okay if you have a synagogue and you keep the, 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 the rituals and the cultural practices and the Day of Atonement and all of those sorts of things. Those are woefully insufficient. Anyways, the a sacrifice of animals was insufficient to begin with, wasn't it? 
So if you don't even have those, then you don't have much. You don't have anything that can cover your sin. How can your sin be covered without the blood of a sufficient sacrifice? So that system has become decoupled from its written foundation. And John's message was that we must repent and that there's one coming who is going to make atonement for our sins and in, uh, in, in make that repentance effective. Now, let me just mention quickly, and then we'll have to close. Uh, verse number 9, or 10 rather, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So I wish I could finish this, but we're way over time already. Judgment is imminent. So this is another reason why you must respond to the message. Repent, why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, why? Because judgment is imminent. And those two, of course, the judgment and the coming of the kingdom are tied together very closely. But uh, he uses the phrase, or the uh, figure here of a, of a man wielding an axe about to cut down a tree, uh, which is a useless tree. And he's using this to increase the urgency of his audience, of these Pharisees. Listen, you've got to repent now because judgment is coming. And so we don't want to scare anybody into, uh, you know, uh, into believing in a sense that you know, we use fear as a negative um, motivation or kind of some kind of um, manipulation is what I'm looking for. It is a motivation, but not a manipulation. But still, it is true that our lives can end at any time, that judgment is imminent, that the kingdom still is coming, uh, it's maybe a little ways off, but it's not, it is coming, and you need to be ready for that kingdom, as we all do. So we urge you, with John the Baptist, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and judgment is imminent. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will watch over us as we think about and respond to this message. Help us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. That is, that we would not speak quickly in contradiction to what is said here, and we would not become angry. But we would pause and, and ask ourselves, what is this? What is going on here? Lord, help each one who hears this message, present tonight, listening live, or later on, that they would be able to stop and think, not just to get mad that, that the pastor's preaching some message of hate or or some intolerant message that, that uh, isn't popular today, but really think in their conscience, what am I doing? Am I right with God? Do I have the mindset of repentance, or am I hard-hearted and self-righteous? Lord, please work by your Spirit in the lives of people who hear the Word to be changed. In Jesus' name. And Lord, if you'd be pleased to let us know a little bit about some of that fruit that might come through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.